Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God says so we can know what to believe, rather than trying to figure out what God said so that so our trying to go to approach for what we believe. Now, I got something going on here. Let me go back to this camera. I don't know what's going on in that camera, but we'll leave it alone. So our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe rather than approaching the Bible to try to figure out what we already believe to find support for what we already believe. Now, the first question today, I wanted to talk about the Trinity in the Old Testament. Because it's interesting, certain Jewish scholars are coming out now and revealing that the idea of different persons in the Godhead is not foreign to the Old Testament. Sometimes they talk about there being seven or ten persons. Uh, So the idea that there could be three in one is solidly found in the Old Testament. For example, you find references throughout the Old Testament to the Father. Then you find references throughout the Old Testament to the Holy Spirit. Then you find references even to the Son of God. And the Messiah is spoken of as doing certain things that only God can do. And so we see the Bible clearly having in the Old Testament this idea of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, Now also, in right out of the gate in Genesis chapter 1, it says, and God, so God created the heavens and the earth. And the word for God there is Elohim, which is in the plural. But the Shema says the Lord God is one. Now, oftentimes scholars will say, well, the plural is to emphasize not only for plurality, but it could be for plurality in a uniqueness of more than one in one. Over and over again in the Old Testament, it's uh, God said, I am God and there is no other, there is none like me. So he is God and there is no other, there's none like me. So the uniqueness of God and yet the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now I want to show you a couple of verses here um, that reveal to us that there's more than just one in the Old Testament. First of all, this is an interesting passage. Oh, no, my iPhone, my scriptures aren't working. No! Oh, I checked everything else, and then I had to reset it. Oh, no. All right, I'm going to read these to you, okay? So, um, first of all, we find in Isaiah 48, uh, 48, 16, and 17, and I wish I could put this up on the screen for you. Come near to me, hear this, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was, I was there. Now, this is the Son speaking about being sent. So, it's the Son that is speaking in Isaiah 45, 16. He says, again, come near to me, hear this, I have spoken in, uh, I have spoken in, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. And now the Lord God and his Holy Spirit have sent me. So now this is Jesus talking about being sent and the Lord God and the Holy Spirit sending him. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, which Jesus came to redeem, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you, prophet, who leads you in the way that you should go. And so we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all referred to in Isaiah 45, 16 through 18. Now in Psalms, 
Uh, in Psalms 2, 6 and 7, it says this about the sun. Yet I have set my king on the holy hill of Zion. I declared the decree. The Lord had said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so God has a begotten son. Later on in that same chapter, chapter or two of Psalms, it says, kiss the son. This is verse 12. Lest he be angry with you and you perish in your way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. And so now we have a reference to salvation. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. So trust is believing. And we see that that's it. Also in Genesis 1, 25 and 26, it says, let us make man in our own image. Now, some have said the us there is angels. Later on, he says, let us go down and see what man is going to do. There are other references in the Old Testament where God uses the word us to talk about himself. But we go back to Genesis 1, 25 and 26, let us make man in our own image. The us here has to be a creator. Let us make it can't be the angels who do not create. Let us make man in our own image. It also has to be in their image. Um, the angels are not in the image of God. They don't uniquely have the image like we do of God in us. The Bible never says that. So let us make a man in our own image. So he made him, he made man in his image, he made them male and female. So it goes back to the singular. He made man in his image, he made them male and, uh, male and female. When in the beginning it says, let us make man in our own image. This is the first chapter of the Old Testament. We also see in the burning bush passage, there's a conflation between the angel of the Lord that is there and God. We see it with Gideon, the same thing. It's the Lord speaking, then it's the angel of the Lord, then the angel of the Lord is saying things that God would be saying. And we see this throughout different portions of the Old Testament. Um, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the child who would be born to us. And it says of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Let me read you also Isaiah 60, verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Now, this is just one of many references to the Holy Spirit of the Bible. There's many of them. And so we see again the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all spoken of in the Old Testament. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. That's just one example of many in the Old Testament. It is clear, once you break it down, that you see Jesus taught in the Old Testament. Now, we've got a study on a long-form study of Jesus in the Old Testament. If you want to go to our YouTube page and look it up, I cover these passages and a few more, um, uh, and I, I cover them more in detail especially uh, the one that has Jesus speaking and uh, talking about the Father and the Holy Spirit, where you find all three of them in one verse in the Old Testament. All right, so um, good to see you guys here. If you're joining us for the first time, really glad to have you here. Um, hope that you are doing well. Uh, so uh, we have our first question today from Pokey. Um, Pokey says, um, question, Robert, your timing on the marriage supper of the Lamb after the rapture or when we come back from Yeshua to the earth or question mark. Yeah, this is a good question. Um, 
I believe the marriage supper of the Lamb is at the end of the age. I know it's in Revelation 19, right before Jesus returns. But, but in the Bible, a lot of times events are roughly, um, they're roughly chronological, but a lot of times they are grouped together in order to make a point. In the book of Mark, it comes in threes. There are three stories that are together that speak of one another. In fact, the dominant passage is often in the middle and the two on the sides give you information about that main passage. And they're not that worried about chronology. That's why when you go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can find things happening in different orders because they weren't as concerned as we are. When I, when I read of the life, it's general, right? He's born in the beginning, he's crucified in the end, he's resurrected in the end, but it's not all completely chronological. Sometimes the Bible groups things together. So the marriage supper of the Lamb comes right after heaven rejoices over the destruction of the city Babylon. This is really interesting because you've got a woman who rides the beast, her cup is full of abominations. Um, Revelation 17, 18 says this woman is the city of Babylon. So there's this city that gets destroyed, its smoke goes up, and they're rejoicing over it in heaven. And right after it talks about them rejoicing about the destruction of Babylon, it then talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb is a woman, right? She's a bride. The, the, um, the woman who rode the beast is false religion. And now the bride are those who faithfully, truly followed him. And then when you go to Revelation 21, it says, I saw, come and I will show you the wife of the lamb. And then they see the city of Jerusalem. And so like the woman was the city Babylon, the woman is represented, the bride, by Jerusalem. And then it says, and on the gates are the 12 names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then it says, on the foundation are the names of the 12 apostles. So the bride would be the all believers of all time. And it would happen at the, the marriage supper of the Lamb would happen at the end of the age rather than right before Jesus returns. Now, I realize that this takes away one of the arguments for the pre-tribulation rapture because people like to use uh, that as an argument that the marriage supper of the Lamb happens and that's the church and the church is the bride. But the only reason, Pokey, that there is a reference that we read last week out of Ephesians of Christ and the church. I speak, he speaks a mystery of Christ in the church. And he's talking about the husband and wife passage out of, out of Ephesians. But no place does the Bible call the church the bride. And replacement theology is responsible for the church being called the bride because they believed that God gave up all of his promises to Israel all the promises he made to Israel, he was going to give them to the church because he rejected Israel because they rejected the Messiah. But we know that he hasn't rejected them forever. Jeremiah 37, the time of the Lord, alas, it is great. It is a time of Jacob's trouble, but he will be saved out of it. Romans 11, 25 and 26 tell, tells us, Bill, I, tell, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So the blindness has happened until, 
and we know that, that not all Jews are blind. There's a remnant that have become saved, and that's increasing now as time's moving on. There are more people getting, there are more Jews getting saved in Israel today than there have been um, probably since the early church. It's just amazing all of the things that are happening there in Israel today. And um, so, if you're going to say that, that God's not going to keep his promises to Israel, you're actually maligning God. Because who makes a promise to one person and then keeps it by giving it to another? What would you think of a parent that promised their kid one thing and then fulfilled that promise by giving it to their brother or sister? What about if you made a, a contract with a bank, but you paid back a different bank? Could you then go to court and declare, I paid it back. I paid it to that bank. I was this bank, but it was that bank. So God's going to make promises to Israel, but then not keep them, but keep them by making them, by switching the person who receives the promises to now the church. So replacement theology is just not true. It is bad theology. It's just not true. It was created when Israel was not a nation because they were trying to figure out how in the, how throughout the Bible do you have Israel, Jerusalem, all these very Jewish aspects in the last days. I mean, if you read the book of Revelation after chapter four, the church isn't mentioned. You know, after um, in chap beginning of chapter four, the church isn't mentioned, but Israel's mentioned, saints are mentioned, but not the church. And so they had to say, well, the church is Israel. This is Israel. When, instead of being, instead of being, or the, the, that Israel, the church is Israel and instead of being Israel in those passages. And so they came up with replacement theology. Now, they didn't have all that information. And this is why we do not want to, you don't want to make theology based on what the world looks like today. You want to look at the scriptures and maybe even reserve not making a judgment, especially when it comes to prophecy. They would have been better off doing that, saying, I don't know what this is at the end of the age, whether it's Israel or what something different, but Israel sure mentioned a lot. Then they could have seen that God was going to restore the nation and then make it a cup of trembling and probably going to be the reason World War III is fought and we're going to come to um, the end of the age. All right? So I believe it is... Um, I believe that the uh, marriage supper of the Lamb happens at the end of the millennium. I think it's the defining event of the, the, the existence of the world. When we gather together and rejoice with, with Him. And um, I think there's a passage that I'll be reading in our study tonight. I can't bring my, I can't bring my scriptures up. Uh, other things change. That's really funny. And I know if I unplug this and plug it back in, that it's going to freeze my whole thing. So I, I can't do that. So I don't have any scriptures today. So I'll, I'll do my best. I can look them up on my other phone and I can read them to you. All right, Pokey. So thank you for your question. I appreciate that. Um, I don't believe it's still during the tribulation period because there are tribulation saints that haven't died yet. There are the Jews on the earth who would be part of the marriage supper of the Lamb. The wife of God is revealed as being the city of, of Jerusalem. So it represents um, both Jews and Gentiles, and there are those that are not there yet. Um, 
And like I said, you can see a clear connection as to why he wanted to put the marriage supper of the Lamb right after the destruction of Babylon because they are counterparts or they are opposites of each other, a woman in a city and a woman in a city. And so he wanted to put them together. All right. So uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it, Pokey. We have a question from Long Story. Uh, Long Story says, are there scriptures that provide guidance on, um, is that uh, euthan euthanasia for companion animals? Hmm. Is it okay to euthanize a pet that is dying? Off topic, I know, but I need to know soon if it's okay to do it. Um, thanks, long story. Uh, sorry to hear that you're having some difficulties with your animal. Um, we could definitely make a, a case against euthanizing for humans, but not for animals. And I don't know of anything in the Bible that would say that you can't euthanize an animal. Um, and in, in fact, um, in, in, in fact, it becomes, it becomes necessary at times, right? And so, um, yeah, I don't know of any, I'm trying to think now of any passages that would provide guidance of what to do. Um, no, I, I can't think of it. Um. It is, I, I would go back to, you know, there are, certain, there are certain morals that are around the world, like in every culture you go to, that are, were disconnected, like murder, rape, um, other morals that the world has. Um, atheists will try to say that we develop these through, um, through evolution. However, evolution doesn't deal with morals, it deals with survival. And so they really prove that God gave, that God created us and that we have morals that come from a lawgiver. That's really the evidence. All over the world, there's a moral that it's okay to euthanize an animal that is suffering or is at the end of its age. And I would, I would use that. I don't know there, there may be a culture that would think it's not okay, but I think that the cultures around the world, people will euthanize horses um, when they break a leg uh, because they're, they're, they're going to die. And um, the same thing with animals, pets that get so expensive in taking care of them, besides just the expense, the animal is suffering and um, does not have the inherent value of a human, which is being made in the image of God. So God says when a man kills a man or a person, when one person kills another person, he's killed someone who was in the image of God and so his life will be taken from him. Now that's in the Old Testament. And so that doesn't connect to animals. So uh, that's what I can think of off the top of my head. Um, sorry, long story that you're having to go through this. I, I hope that the Lord really does give you direction and really does help you. And by the way, um, you can ask any question that you want to. So there's nothing really that's off topic. All right. Um, sometimes we get talking about the same thing for a while. Um, so uh, we have a question that comes in from Fluffy Strawberry through Keith. Uh, Keith, thank you for being here. He's our moderator. 
um, fluffy strawberry welcome please um, resubmit your question oh oh I see so this isn't oh it just looked like it was so this isn't a question <laughs> thank you all right so um, we have a question from Jari um, Japtha's daughter everyone did what was right in his own eyes so what happened to Japtha's daughter did she die or was she just a virgin thanks all right so Jephthah going into war this is in the book of Judges Jephthah is going into war and he says um, if you let me win I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house and I've always said my theory is that Jephthah has a dog he doesn't like sorry long story <laughs> I'm not sure if you're dealing with a dog or not, but sorry, that was my that's that was my theory, and he wanted to sacrifice it. Um, but his daughter ran out, and so when you go and you read the story, but the account, then she goes off with her friends and has a period of time, and the question is, did he sacrifice her, or did he keep her from marriage? And there are arguments on both sides. So if you were to take time to look this up and research it, you would find a pretty good argument that he didn't really sacrifice her. That he sacrificed her future, as it were. And as I said, there's pretty good arguments for it. I don't know that I buy it completely. Um, I, I like it better than him sacrificing his daughter because if he did sacrifice his daughter it would have been better for him to break his vow you want to keep your vows you're going to make them keep them but it would be better to break a bad vow and and that was a bad vow um, maybe even sacrificing the rest of her life was a bad vow but the book of judges is full of, of accounts like this that are horrible and people do horrible things um, it was a time, as you said here, they were doing what was right in their own eyes and they weren't really interested in following after God. So I don't know that we, out of necessity, have to make the story him not sacrificing his daughter. If it is, then you've got human sacrifice. Um, but God didn't tell him to do it. He did it. And he shouldn't have done it. It would have been better, it'd be better to break your vow, the lesser sin of breaking your vow, than, than sacrificing your daughter, which would be murder. Um, and people have done for God things that are horrible thinking they're doing the right thing. It doesn't make them right. And there was a better way to go. And I think Jephthah had that, um, had a better way to go. Um, like I said, the argument that there was something else going on, that he didn't actually sacrifice her, but that she was not able to get married. It, it is connected to the story, and I can't look up the verses here now. I can't put them up on the screen. Um, but there is some connection to it that makes it at least somewhat feasible that this could be what they're talking about. All right? So thank you, Jari. I appreciate it. Good to see you. And, well, let's see. We have another question. Let's see. Um, all right, we have a question from Sally. Uh, I would never do that. 
let's see. Okay, so I'm noticing here. Okay, so I see um, Kay's statement here, and I'm trying to make sense of it. Um, okay, so Cheryl Pastor would never do that intentionally. I noticed that it is very beginning, and after that is all the welcome, welcome to you and from everyone. He skipped those pastors. So I don't know which pastors I skipped. Um, let's take a look back here and see. You said Cheryl. I'm going to take back, let's just look back here and see if I missed something from Cheryl. All right. Um, Bias, please submit your questions again. He will see it if you send it again. So I did, I skipped somebody. Let me go back and look. Um, so Jari is Jephthah's daughter. Um, I'm just going to take time to go ahead and do this. Uh, Mary's Supper of the Lamb. Uh, we already covered. Ah, so um, there, Cheryl. Um, okay. All right, here we go. Let, let me go ahead and bring this in. And um, the best thing to do if I skip a question is for somebody else to write question and then say, you skipped so-and-so's question. And then I can go back up and I can get it. All right. Um, so I appreciate that. Okay. Kind of straightening that out. So, um, where is God when you're suffering? Jehovah Witnesses thinks I'm tired. Jehovah, uh, Jehovah Witnesses think, thinks I'm tired of suffering. All right. Where is God uh, when you're suffering? All right. Thank you very much, Cheryl, for your question. Uh, so, the Bible never says that we are not going to suffer. In fact, the Bible says in this world we'll have tribulation. Paul talked about completing the suffering of Christ in his own body. When Paul was called to be an apostle, even a Christian, Annas, um, Annas was told to t or Ananias was told to tell him, I have many things for you to suffer. So, the call for Paul from the very beginning was to suffer. God uses suffering, difficulties, and trials. The Bible says, uh, don't consider it strange when you encounter various trials. Rejoice um, when you are faced uh, trials, knowing the test of your faith produces endurance. So God takes us through hardships and we do suffer. Eventually, people will suffer and die. Uh, Cheryl, the, um, we've been created to interact with this world through pain. We reach out and touch a hot stove and we know it. We grab a knife that's sharp and we know it and we pull away. And so our feelings protect us, but sometimes they get out of control. And sometimes they get out of control because of evil. People do evil things and if they didn't do evil things, there wouldn't be suffering. So a lot of suffering is inflicted in the world because God gave men a free choice. Now, sometimes we suffer just because we're human and something happens and we suffer. The suffering might be physical. The suffering might be losing someone close to you and you're grieving severely over it. The suffering um, might be some mental anguish that is going on. And God has never said that we wouldn't go through them and face them. But what Jesus did say in Matthew 28, at the end of the Great Commission, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. No peril, no struggle, no difficulty can separate us from any of that. In fact, I want to go there and I want to read this to you. So this is Romans chapter 8, near, um, kind of near the end here. 
where it says, Romans 8, um, let me just see if I can go here, like that, but also the first fruits of the Spirit, um, adoption, okay. Mm-hmm. Things work together for the good, let's see, um, yeah, so let me just read this to you, I'm going to try to put it up on the screen again, it ain't, it, it ain't working, um, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he did not spare his own son, but delivered up, up for us all, how shall he not with all uh, him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Uh, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? That's suffering tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, the sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to the slaughter. Yet in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us, loved us. So God is able, even through our difficulties and perils, to be there for us. You also have, in Hebrews chapter 11, people that do great things by faith. But then you have those who by faith never saw the promises of God, but yet they followed God. People who were sawn in half and killed. Um, the struggles and the difficulties at the end there of chapter, um, of chapter uh, 11 of the book of Hebrews. Now here's the thing. God has a purpose for evil and God has a purpose for suffering. And Jesus is the ultimate example of that. We think of Jesus suffering and he brought salvation to the world. Now, I might not like that there's a God's purpose in suffering and the suffering may be severe in my life, but I still trust God in it and believe he's working all things together for the good. Paul said, I am persuaded that the sufferings of this life cannot be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. That's a great statement and helps us to understand it. So I don't know how the Jehovah Witnesses are connected here. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how the Jehovah Witnesses are connected here. Um, and, you know, you, you may be tired of suffering. I mean, it never says we're going to go through tribulation and not get tired of suffering. But, but God's got a plan and God's got a purpose and the Bible tells us that we're going to face them so they don't just happen to us. All right? I, I appreciate your question and thank you, Kay, for um, getting uh, me back on uh, answering all the questions that are here. All right? I do appreciate that. All right. Um, yeah, I am going to be talking about replacement theology tonight in our study on the marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, I appreciate that. So, let's see. Uh, Sally. Um, Sally has a question. Did we already cover this or no? Uh, there are some... I can't read it that small. There are some that teach that the rapture and second coming are one and the same that they occur simultaneously. Please, uh, uh, Robert, please explain how one arrives at such a conclusion. Um, well, there's, there's different, Sally, there's different views on eschatology. That's the study of the last days. 
And eschatology is a is not a main tenet of the return of Christ. Jesus is going to return. That's a main tenet. It's you know it's in the creeds that Jesus is going to return to judge the quick and the dead, meaning the, the living and the dead. That he's going to return at a time. There's going to be living people. There's going to be dead people, and they are going to be raised. So that was in it. But what we believe about post millennialism or all millennialism or premillennialism doesn't have anything to do with salvation. And so when someone believes something different than what we believe, we should not break fellowship over what they believe different about eschatology because it's not at the heart of Christianity. Now we want to believe the truth and so we're searching the scriptures to try to find them. Uh, now people come to post-tribulation rapture, believing that the rapture is going to happen at the end of the tribulation period and that Christians are going to go through it all. They're going to be, sometimes they say they're going to be kept through it, but they're given over. The, the saints are given over to the Antichrist and he overcomes them. So you can't say that Revelation 3.10, which says, that because you've persevered, I will keep you from the hour of testing that's going to come through the whole world is just being kept through it. So I believe that Jesus could return at any moment. And because of that, he said, blessed is the, is the, blessed is the one whom the master finds watching when he returns. Jesus said, you don't know when I'm returning, so be ready. He's not coming like a thief in the night to us. For others, he's going to catch them unaware. But for us, he's not going to because we're watching. He said in Luke 21, watch and wait and pray that you would be counted worthy to escape all these things and stand before the Son of Man. So I don't believe in the post-tribulation. Uh, someone who's, who is post-tribulation is going to is going to have answers to all of the passages. So they're going to be able to come back in and go, this is why I don't believe that. This is why I don't believe that. I think Jesus was talking about just escaping bad things, not the tribulation, even though the tribulation is the context. Um, there is... At the end of Matthew 24, I think it's verse 31, uh, when Jesus returns, there's a rapture-like event where he sends his angels out to the four corners of the earth and gathers together the elect. And these would be the Jews who are hidden in the wilderness, tribulation saints that might still be surviving. Um, it's not, doesn't take place in the air, it takes place on the earth. So it looks different than 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that we're going to meet the Lord in the air and forever be with the Lord. Um, but if I were going to try to defend, and I like to do this, I like to know someone's position strong enough to be able to defend it, to take that side in an argument. If I'm doing that, I'm not strawmanning them. I'm not just making their argument look weak. I'm trying to make it look strong so that we can figure out what the truth is. So if I were going to take their side in an argument, that's what I would do. I would go and say, this is the rapture here. That you know, you got an event that looks very much like the rapture, and like First Thessalonians chapter four, like First Corinthians chapter fifteen, and it's going to take place at the end of the age. Now, I have a lot of reasons why I don't think that's correct, but that's how someone would come to such a statement. Plus, they you know they kind of believe that the rapture is just so bizarre, and it is a strange doctrine that people are going to disappear. Now, it is the resurrection, and they're being caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and those who are alive and remain will be resurrected in a moment, in twinkling of an eye. 
their body is going to be changed. So we're not going to die. And Paul said, I tell you the truth, there are going to be those who don't sleep. Um, but they would, they would apply them at the end of the age. They would not apply them. They would believe that, that there's going to be a rapture and then they're going to come right back down. They're going to go and, and meet him and then, you know, they're, they're on their way back to the earth. So that's how they would come to such a position. Um, it's hard for me to get there because um, I don't believe that. I believe that he's coming back for his church before the tribulation period starts. Uh, it is the wrath of God from the beginning of the opening of the first seal all the way through. Um, we see that there, the wrath is, is, is there on uh, in that seven-year tribulation, and I believe that. Um, and I think Jesus come back at any moment, and when you have time, you don't know it. And if he comes back in the tribulation period, you're going to know it. He says, I'm coming back at a time you don't expect. So, um, uh, we have a question from Brandon. Brandon says, um, what does Jesus mean in John 3, 8? That those born of the Spirit are like the wind blowing where he wishes, uh, where it wishes. Yeah, so let's, um, let me go there. Even though I can't put it up on the screen, I can read it to you. So John 3, 8. Let me get there. Sorry. John 3, and we're going to go to 8. We're probably going to back up here a little bit. Um, yeah, so this is Jesus talking to Nicodemus, right? And uh, he says, Most surely I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus says, How can a man, you know, um, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he return a second time to his mother's womb to be born? And so he's kind of mocking Jesus. Jesus said, Most surely I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, the water here is not baptism. The water is the flesh, the amniotic fluid that breaks. Um, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Jesus tells us this now. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. He doesn't say that which is born of the water is water. He says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound, but it cannot tell where it comes from. So, um, and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. So I think Jesus is talking about the invisible work of the Spirit in salvation. So he's talking about being born again. That's the context. And so when he says, you must be born again, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear, don't hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes, so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. So you can see the effects of the wind, but you can't see the wind itself. And so when someone is born again, you can see the effects of the Spirit in their lives, but the Spirit is moving in a way that the Spirit wills, and He's making the changes that He wants to make. So I think that's what He's talking about. Now, you could apply this, and a lot of people do, to the Spirit directing and guiding you now that you're born again. So the Spirit is going to lead you, and you're going to be directed by Him. So you could connect it to that, but keeping it in context, He's talking about salvation, and when you are born again, there's a transformation that happens. You become a new person, you are born again, and you can't see it from the outside. There's nothing that changes. You don't get a Holy Spirit glitter in your um, gleam in your eye that now I'm born again. Uh, it happens, and the Holy Spirit moves, but you see the effect of the person who was touched in a radically changed life. And um, it's been said that people don't generally change. 
Um, I know atheists believe this, that determinism, we're just determined to do what we're going to do. But we see some real changes with people. Saul of Tarsus had a real change. James, the brother of Jesus, had a real change. This was by the Holy Spirit. And you couldn't see the Holy Spirit inside of them doing the work, but you could see the effects of the Holy Spirit when they are born again. All right, Brandon, thank you for your question. I appreciate that. Uh, always, if you have a follow-up, then we could take a look at that as well. Um, we have a question from Brooklyn the Skeptic. Good to see you, Brooklyn. Brooklyn says, in the days before Jesus in the Old Testament, did people have to be part of the nation of Israel to be saved? People who lived in China, Africa could not be saved. There were people in China and Africa, by the way. Yes, I know. Thank you, Brendan, for clarifying that. Um, yeah, so Romans chapter 1 says that God has revealed himself to everyone through creation. And so people know that there's a creator, that he's powerful, that he created everything that we see. It was much, the world was much larger than what they saw when Paul wrote that in Romans. Uh, the Bible says God measures the universe with the span of his hand, which means God's much larger than the time, space, matter continuum. But the very fact that there is a creation means that there is a creator. And then looking at the fact that of how fine-tuned our earth is in order for there to be life. I realize that people say, well, you know, the fine-tuning happened through evolution. We, we became formed to the world that we were living in. But just to have a world that can have life is so improbable that they've come up with, with multi-universe theories Black holes create bubbles and they're more universes. You get enough universes and there's going to be one who's going to be the lottery winner. And that's true. There is one that is a lottery winner. But when you're looking at the odds of something happening, you don't look at it like there's going to be a lottery winner. If you take an astronomical number and the idea that there could be a planet that would have all the things that have to be in place is so astronomical. It would be like taking these numbers, whatever it is, you know, 48 to the, to the 36 power, whatever the, the probability is, and it's a huge number, like that, and th which is just, you can't even fathom that number. And then mark a ball, and what are the chances that that ball is going to pop in to, you know, the, 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 the chooser? It's going to rumble all around. And, and how many times would you go through that until one would finally, that ball would finally come out? And it doesn't have to ever come out because with that probability, I got that many balls out there, that one marked ball may never find its way out. So it's possible that there would not be enough worlds. But the idea that there are multiverses have been disproved by scientists. Scientists have disproved the idea. So because there's a creation, we know there's a creator and everyone knows that. God also says that he puts inside of man a light or a, a witness of him, that they know that God exists. So there's something inside of man that man knows God exists and there is something outwardly creation that causes them to know that there's an all-powerful creator. I believe that men are judged by the light that they have. And someone can be in Africa or China, know that there is a God and respond positively to the light that's given to him. Now, what I'm not saying, Brooklyn, is that people can be saved without Jesus Christ. 
they would be saved through Jesus, but they would respond positively to the light that's given them. Now, how many people do that? I don't know, but I believe it's possible. And we have an example in the Old Testament with Abraham, where Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him righteousness. So Abraham responded to the light he was given and it was accounted to him righteousness and he never knew the name of Jesus, but it was accredited to him. So Jesus would die in the future and Abraham received salvation on credit. So these guys in other parts of the world, maybe an unreached part of the world today, who have never had a chance to hear it, could respond positively to the light that they have and be credited the salvation of Jesus Christ, like Abraham was credited the salvation. Now, I do have, I think, both, I do have both short form and long form. So, I've got a short form teaching on, uh, you can go to our YouTube page, Brooklyn, and you can look up um, what happens to those who never heard. Uh, you could also look up, I think that, you know, all children go to heaven. So, it's another one that deals with this concept. You know, what about children that die before they're at the age of what we would call accountability? And that may differ and there's some arguments about that age, but this would be children all around the world who would, who would, who would be saved. So, um, that's, uh, that's what I believe. Um, Brooklyn, I believe that God does give everybody a certain amount of light that they can respond to. All right. So, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, if you have a follow-up, then I'd love to hear it. All right. Brooklyn, thank you. So, um, Jari says, follow-up, World War II, uh, do you believe that will bring, uh, okay, uh, World War II, do you believe they will bring back the military draft? What's your opinion, Pastor? Thank you. Yeah, I have no idea. Could, uh, could there be an event that would make it necessary to bring back the draft to get people in? Maybe. Possible. So, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't see it close on the horizon. Warfare today is a lot different. You have to have a, a number of people with it, but warfare is done a lot of times with drones. You're not even sending planes in. Um, the military's working on AI and robots and all kinds of things that could end up being problems in the future. So, I'm going to have to pass on this a little bit. Um, my opinion yeah, I don't know that I'm informed enough now. I would say, as of right now, I don't think they're going to bring it back. But could events happen that would cause them to bring it back? Yes. But um, not as of right now. All right? Uh, all right. So, uh, let's see. Let's go ahead and look at another question. So, where's God in the suffering? Yeah. Um, so, Cheryl uh, posted that again. Um, and we talked about that. So, God's with you in the midst of that. He's got a plan and a purpose in it, and I don't know what that is. And sometimes when people, Christians, die from suffering, God's still got a plan and a purpose in it. And Paul wanted to complete the work of Christ in his suffering, which didn't mean the cross. It meant that his suffering was reaching out and touching other people. All right. So, thank you very much. Um, I appreciate that. So, we have a question from Kay. And Kay says, if any, Jew, uh, if any Jewish were told, if any Jews were told that they have been blinded, 
would they ever confess them, open their eyes, question it? Do they not wonder why family members leave forever to follow Christ? Yeah, well, they, they do. And a lot of times they are ostracized. And Jesus even said, I came to bring a sword, not peace. And he would divide families. Fathers and children would be divided because of him. And there are family members who believe in Christ, um, whether that's in Islam or Judaism, who will be rejected by their family members. Um, it's interesting what's happening in Israel today with the Jewish people. Maybe because for so long they could control the narrative. They could control where someone would get their information. They were in an echo chamber, as it were. But now we live in a world, and Israel is, is free. They can, you know, they can look things up. They can go on the internet. They can, you know, so they can get other information. So now they can begin to look things up on their own. Um, Isaiah 53 is very powerful to read to someone who's Jewish because it doesn't come up in the synagogue readings. And so when you read it to them and it's so obviously Jesus, uh, there's a, a response that's pretty powerful. And I think it's a move of God. I think we're entering into those last days. Um, yeah, there are Jews who realize that they've been blind. And they do confess them. And um, I, I, I know several of them um, that are Jewish and are Christians. And uh, some that were brought up in Judaism and then became a Christian. And there's been a real hardship for them. Um, uh, there, um, Steve Sherman here in town used to have a Sunday service and a Messianic service. And there are a lot of people there that had met Christ and had come to him. And um, this may, this could just be another sign that we are near the end, that we are seeing a lot more Jews in Israel. There's so many coming that they keep reintroducing a bill that if you, if you win somebody over to Christ, if they're an adult, you go to jail for a year. If they're a child uh, under 18, you can go to jail for two years. And that's a, and they, and they keep reintroducing that bill. Now, they don't have a majority now to be able to pass it, but there are people who really believe that you go and you tell people about Jesus, you should be in prison. That's so much like the New Testament, isn't it? So much like the book of Acts, where they imprisoned them and even killed them because they were making a confession of him. And they're trying to stop the gospel from going around um, Israel today, but it's going there. Part of it is the tourists. Um, uh, I, I had a friend who believes, I have a friend who believes that the 144,000 are going to be tour guides from Israel because they've heard the message of the gospel so much. They've listened in. Um, they, they listen when I'm, when, when we're over there and I'm, I'm giving a, a Bible study in a certain place. They listen to what's said. Um, in fact, we had a new guide this last time and we were at Qumran and I was talking about how we got our Bible and manuscript evidence in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and how we compare scripture to scripture and how it's a positive thing that we have all these manuscripts instead of the autographed copy. Because the autographed copy, if it was just controlled by one person, could have been changed. But if copies were made from one, how can you change all the copies? 
Instead, you've got to look and compare and contrast and see what's a good copy and a bad copy and where the differences are. And we can see that a change has been made over here, but we can see that that change is, doesn't translate over here or in the vast majority of them. So no one has the power to change what the Bible says. If there was an autographed copy, somebody could have changed it in the, in, uh, could have changed that autograph copy and changed the entire word of God. But because there's so many copies. And after that, um, the new guy came up and said, that is probably the best explanation I've heard about how we handle manuscripts. So he was listening, Jewish. And um, some of the guides that we have had have become Christian. And that's just really interesting. It's just really interesting what's taking place over there. And yes, it does happen. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so, um, let's see, in the days before, so that's Brooklyn's question, and, um, so Brooklyn, also, just back to your question a little bit, a little bit condescending at the end, right? There were people in China and Africa, by the way, like, like, we don't know that, that we didn't know that there were people in, in China and Africa. Those are the kind of things, and this is why, Brooklyn, I had brought up that I thought that you had been going to a website to find questions, because they have questions there people can ask, and they generally are condescending, and they're said in such a way that they're accusatory when they're said. And so, just pointing that out, that if I'm asking you a question, um, Brooklyn, about um, I think you were an agnostic, if I remember right, um, so if I'm asking you a question about it, and I'm condescending or I'm asking the question in a way that it makes you look bad, where if you answer yes to it, that it looks incriminating. Um, you can do that, you can do that through, you know, through questions in, instead of asking in an open way where things can be explained, that the answer may be yes, but it doesn't have to be the incriminating way that a question is asked. And oftentimes, when atheists ask these questions, they'll do these kind of things. And I just kind of wanted to point that out. Um, it's just condescending. And there's no reason for us to be that way um, with each other at all. And I, I, I wouldn't be that way to you at all. And I think it's, it's much better if we don't. And um, I, I'm just in the habit of when we do get someone who's a critic, a skeptic, an atheist, and they ask a question that is in an accusatory or, you know, just kind of a little degrading, then I, I, I want to point it out just so that we can see it and maybe have a little bit better interaction with one another that can be, that can be good. Um, now, I realize people are easily offended. I'm not offended by that. I'm just looking at it and going, it's a little condescending. That's all. All right. Um, uh, Yeah, you're welcome, Sally. So Sally's just uh, thanking me for the question on how someone could see things in pro-trib. Um, so Melissa Cadmus has a question. Um, we believe in the Trinity, but what proves that one is not higher in rank than the other, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Um, so we would go back to the statements of Jesus talking about his submission to the Father, which was a uh, which was a voluntary submission of the Son. And 
the equalness of the Father and the Son through the statements of Jesus. And I'm not sure off the top of my head where they are. Um, I'm trying to think of, we did a study maybe a couple of years ago where that was on the Trinity and we dealt with the equality of all of them. And I, I can't remember the name of it, but in order to look at how they're the same, you look at a couple of things. You look at the statements of Jesus. And Jesus makes, especially in the book of John, there are some statements about equality there in the Godhead that are very powerful. Um, and then there's also a voluntary submission of the Father to the Son, of the, of the Son to the Father. But that doesn't stop Tim talking about the glory that he had with the Father in the beginning in John 17, for example. Also, you see in the Bible that the Son is attributed to creating, God's attributed to creating, the Holy Spirit is. All three are attributed um, salvation. And so you see there's an equality in the way that each one of them um, looks at those. All right? So I'm sorry, Melissa, I don't have those scriptures, you know, right off the top of my head. It's been a couple of years since we did a study on it. Um, but it is a it is good question. And uh, you can absolutely go back and look at the statements of Jesus about the Trinity uh, to be able to see that there is an equality within the Godhead. All right? So again, sorry, I don't have those scriptures off the top of my head. Um, <clears throat> All right, so we have another question from Kay. Kay says, what do you think about this? Protesters and angry passerbys who purposely yell <clears throat> or hold up signs against Christ could mean God is working in them. Why else would they take the time? Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? Um, I'll, I'll tell you what else I think about, Kay, is why atheists are so concerned about Christians, why they hate the fact that we believe or they mock us for believing. You know, they'll, they'll say things like, you believe in the giant spaghetti monster? They, they mock us for what we believe. But if there is no God, then what does it matter what anybody believes? You could believe Mickey Mouse is God. You could believe in a flying spaghetti monster if you wanted to. Because there's, there's no God if you're an atheist. So why be so concerned and why have such hatred towards Christians? Why do, why do the neo-atheists like Dawkins and, and Hitchens who's, gone to, uh, who's, who's passed away, um, why, why are they so hateful towards Christians? Why do they make such derogatory statements towards Christians? And the crazy thing is, is when Dawkins talks about all the evil Christians have done, the atheists have done so much worse, so much worse. And, and, and we don't judge him based on what other atheists have done. There's certainly Christians that have done bad things or, or so-called Christians, but we aren't to be judged by them. You, 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 don't judge, you don't judge the chef by the waiter. You don't judge God by what Christians have done. You've got to judge God by what God has done, uh, not by what Christians have done. All right, so let me just take a look here. We are coming to the end of our, are we at the end of the hour? Oh, we got, um, yeah, it's five o'clock. Wow, craziness. So let me just see what else we've got here. 
really quick. Um, good to see you guys today. Sometimes this hour goes by so incredibly fast. Um, so, um, so different questions, specific Old Testament laws, people who lived on other parts of the world, um, before Jesus, before the Old Testament was really written. Okay. Um, all right. Um, so yeah, Brooklyn says, um, Calvary Tucson with Robert Furrow. I am asking a uh, serious question. Yes, I know. Um, when I ask others, they tell me that Adam and Eve were the first human beings. Okay. Um, I don't have time to deal with this now, but I will in, in another study. I mean, in another Q&A. All right, Brooklyn. Um, we've got a service in about an hour. And, and I do know you're asking serious questions. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that at the end of your question, when you ask about what about people in the time of the Bible, in the Old Testament, who lived in China or Africa, and then you say, and there were people who lived in China or Africa, by the way. That's condescending as if we don't know. Now, had I come back and said, there's nobody living in Africa or China, <laughs> then you could say, by the way, there are those living there. I think your question's serious. I'm just saying it's condescending. And oftentimes, atheists ask this way. They will ask a question in a way that if you say yes, it's, it's, it sounds bad instead of asking a question in a more honest way. And oftentimes they'll add condescending statements. And um, oftentimes when you go to the websites, if you just look up websites, uh, no, questions, have, um, um, questions atheists can ask Christians, just look something like that up, several websites. When you go to the questions on those websites, they're often laid out for you in a, in a way that attacks. And that's why I said a while back, Brooklyn, um, are you getting these questions from um, a, um, from a website because they're asked in that in, in a way where if you say yes to your question it looks bad so it's like you're you're painting it a certain way so um, I could I could do the same to an atheist where I could ask the atheist a question and twist it so that and, and ask it in such a way that if they answer it in what they obviously believe that it's going to look bad to them but I, I just wouldn't do that. Um, I want to have a more honest, open conversation. But I do believe that you are asking questions sincerely. All right, Brooklyn? And, and, I, and we will cover it um, here in the future. All right? Um, uh, I, yeah, and, and, and yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe there's a, a larger conversation going on here with Brooklyn. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't, yeah, when I'm talking about Hitchens or Dawkins, I'm talking about them. I'm not talking about you. I'm just talking about the way that, that atheists interact with Christians often and Dawkins and Hitchens, because of that, they do that. I'm not, I'm not projecting any of that onto you. All right. So um, I appreciate you. Uh, now, uh, this, um, we have a service tonight. We're going to be talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. We talked about a little bit of that in the beginning. I'm looking forward to covering that with you guys. Um, we're covering the first 10 chapters in chapter um, 19 of the book of Revelation. Uh, we'll be back together again next Wednesday. Good to have, I mean, excuse me, Saturday, 4 o'clock. Good to have you guys here. If you have questions, write them down. Use the notes on your phone. Write down your question while you think about it, or if you're listening to a Bible study, take notes of that. Uh, this is a supplement to the teaching ministry of Calvary Tucson, giving people a chance to be able to clarify and ask questions. So really good to have you here. Stay close to Jesus. Um, the Lord bless you. 
keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. Uh, the Lord be gracious unto you. All right. God bless you guys. Love you. We will see you later on. I am out.